Up and down the coast of California, from San Diego to Sacramento, from the Bay to the border, these are the young voices of the Golden State. This podcast tells their stories, the stories of men and women who are fighting for a voice in their communities and all over the country, who are working together in solidarity to rise up as one. From Fusion Media Group, this is The Brave. I'm your host, Felonius Monk, and together with reporters from Fusion's Rise Up, Be Heard youth journalism program, we're lifting up the stories of real people who are discovering strength and solidarity and common cause with one another. Okay, to get us started, I'm going to set the scene for you. We're in downtown Los Angeles in an old warehouse that's been turned into office buildings. We're on a couch inside a graphic design studio with journalist Mariah Castaneda. She grew up not too far from here, and she's seen this area change a lot in a very short period of time. Especially down here in the Arts District, where old warehouses and industrial buildings have given way to coffee shops and clothing stores. I moved around here around middle school. Um... But I never thought growing up that I'd be here on Brown Santa Fe Mateo Street uh, because back then this was all warehouses. As you can still see, there are a bunch of warehouses. Um, there definitely weren't coffee shops. It's kind of crazy to me now. I see all these graffiti buildings um, or these murals and I'll see pictures on Instagram. People are like posing, striking a pose. To me, it's really weird because that wasn't a thing before. We're here to meet a very special young man who's using social media in a very different way to spread a message of solidarity to members of his community and beyond. Uh, my name is Ivan Ceja. I identify as an immigrant from Michoacan, Mexico. I am undocumented in the United States. Ivan is the co-founder of Undocumedia, a social media platform that began as a way to raise awareness about the lives of undocumented men and women living in the U.S., but has now grown to be something much, much bigger. Undocumedia, this year alone, since Trump has been inaugurated, uh, grew by over 300%. And I tell people, it's bittersweet, because while I'm happy that our platform is growing, I'm also upset and sad because uh, the reason it grew is people needed help, and they were messaging us that they were afraid their parents would be deported, um, that they were afraid. So for me, it reminded me of how I felt when my parents told me, uh, and it just brought all those memories back. And I tell people, that's the reason we do the work we do, because we knew how hard it was to find out. And the last thing we want is for them to feel how we felt, and that was alone. Now, with all these tools we have at our disposal, we want next time a parent has to tell their children that they are undocumented, they say, hey, we have a resource for you. And that's what we're trying to become. But like so many other undocumented residents living in the U.S., Yvonne's story starts in a place that's not quite home. So how did your parents first come to the U.S.? Um, so I was born in 1991, and my parents decided about um, a couple months later, when I was nine months old, to immigrate to the U.S. I was the only child at the time, so uh, my dad made the journey first. After seven attempts to cross the border, he was able to make it across. Then my mom, a couple months later, my dad sent some money back. And she crossed alone, um, and then uh, I was able to cross with another family. Uh, because I was a baby, they took a much safer route, uh, which was just trying to you know, cross through with driving, hoping that I wouldn't get caught. And it's a lot easier because I am a baby. 
But for them, it was this idea that they didn't want to stay in the small part of Michoacan, Mexico, where I would then just be another endless cycle of just working the fields, um, not going to school, not having that opportunity. Um, not to say that's not a life of dignity or one that doesn't res- deserve respect, because there's a lot of hard work that my grandfather does. But again, I, I did notice when I went to visit briefly in 2015, after more than 23 years, that it is like an endless cycle where you just get stuck there. And I don't think they wanted that for me. Actually, a dear friend of mine is from Michoacan, Mexico. And one of the symbols that comes out of that area is la monarca, or the monarch butterfly. How do you feel about this symbol, the symbol of the journey? Uh, do you feel like it's sanitizing? Or So for me, like I love las monarcas, because even in Michoacan, you have the soccer team, El Morelia, uh, monarcas. So growing up, like we always identified. So I would root for that team. And that was before I even understood what monarca was, uh, because I would follow the team just growing up, because my dad rooted for them. Um, and we would watch soccer all the time, uh, rooting for most Mexican sports team. But that was our team, because that's who where we were from. Um, it wasn't totally later that I realized, oh, Monarca is monarch butterfly. Okay. And then when I joined the movement uh, at 17 in 2009, ever since I remember, that has been a symbol of migration. It's been a symbol of immigration, uh, of immigrants. And it's because of the long journey that those butterflies make every year, right? That miles, miles on end. And for me, I, I love that symbol because it's, but the monarch butterfly is free. The monarch butterfly goes where it wishes. And it just so happens that it goes from Mexico to the U.S. So it's a little closer even to us as Mexican immigrants. But for me, yeah, I've had a lot of times where I've been thought, like, even if I was going down uh, the border or walking across the desert, I would have to stop. But the butterfly gets to keep going. <laughs> but I have to stop there. Um, so that's one way that I really do I have reflected on that. And not just the monarch butterfly, but anything else that gets to cross over. Even, you know... Uh, Goods get to cross over as long as it's for profit, but people we don't get to. Yes, yeah, so DACA uh, was a program that was announced by President Obama in uh, June 15, 2012, which was a program that was going to help about 2 million undocumented youth access a work permit to be able to work legally in this country, and two, relief from deportation. Relief from deportation meant they're no longer a priority for immigration authority or ICE. So what did that do for us? It basically meant I can now work legally. There's so many jobs that so many of us were fully qualified for, with the exception of not having a social security number after living here for several years. And two, it really comes with a lot of anxiety and pressure and even other uh, mental health factors when you're undocumented here and constantly having to think, am I going to make it home today? Am I going to get pulled over and deported? And because we now have DACA, we could it solved that. We were able to access work and no longer have to look over our shoulder as afraid again. Um, and that happened in 2012. So I applied, and in seven weeks I had it. I could have went on about my merry day and said, I'm going to get a really good job now. I'm just going to go ahead and go and focus on me. But I remember I went to a presentation two days after getting approved. And it was a room filled with dozens of families and youth like myself. And they were there to talk about deferred action, DACA, and the benefits. And then when I went in there and shared my story... I was the only one in the room with it. And I wondered, why do they not have it? Like, the program's been out for seven weeks. You have, If you're undocumented and eligible, you should have applied by now. 
And I understood, again, my privilege. I had, I knew where to go. I had parents who were willing to help me with the money. So for me, it was like, okay, what do I do about it? I don't have money, like you mentioned, for a channel on TV or a radio station or all these other power outlets. But I can create a Facebook group. I can create a Facebook page. I can create a website. I didn't know how to do a lot of these, but I just Googled it. And I created my website on Weebly, I remember. Um, And I went ahead and created a Facebook group called The Deferred Action. And I said, the least I could do is tell them how to fill out every page, tell them what does the process look like, and, um, and then tell them, I did it, you can do it too. And that's what we've done. And ever since then, it's just grown. But that's where Indocumedia started, I tell people. It doesn't stop with us, with one person benefiting. If there's so many others who need help, there's still a lot of progress to be made. And that year in 2014, when I created the Instagram, is when we made the shift. And I said, okay, I'm going to call it Indocumedia. Uh, it's a term that um, some of my mentors used um, for workshops in 2000, earlier in the years. And there was this idea that undocumented immigrants can create their own content, tell their own stories, instead of waiting for Univision or this other outlet to want to give us value and FaceTime. Um, it was, uh, Undocumedia was a term coined by uh, Nancy Mesa, Julio Salgado, Jesus y Niñez. And then I remember uh, four years later, after I heard, first heard the term, no one was using it. So I said, I like that, that idea that it doesn't just have to be DACA. We can apply it to other things. Undocumedia is it. That's when I rebranded everything and called all the accounts in Documedia. Um, and I think uh, one of some of our greatest successes was that now people had a sense of like community. People and like finally had a platform that they were already on that they could start following it. And then two, based on our own experiences, we were able to start putting out content around Black Lives Matter, LGBTQ plus community, Muslim community, about the environment, etc. And we did it in a way where we always tied it back to undocumented immigrants. So we made the intersection clear. There's undocumented trans people, there's undocumented black people, there's undocumented gay people, and etc. and so forth. Um, so people understood, okay, you're not just throwing a ball out of like left field for the sake of putting it on here. No, you're telling me why this is connected. So now these groups feel a sense of urgency to act with one another because we've made it clear why you need to work together. Um, as far as setbacks, the greatest setback with a platform is that the bigger it grows, the harder it is to please everyone. But like I tell everyone and anyone, when we post an undocumedia, it doesn't necessarily mean that every single one in our team agrees with every single post we put out, but I tell them it's because it's bigger than us. We're offering you perspectives. We're offering you different points of view. You adopt them on your own. Never any point of view that is harmful, but we also know, just like anything else, with liberals, progressives, Republicans, conservatives, whatever you will call them, they're all on a different spectrum. So that's the greatest setback that we are facing now. We're growing so fast, but you can't please everyone. And I don't think we aim to please everyone. It's just, hey, we have to understand we're all on different grounds, but we need to find that that where we do identify and agree that humanity is what we're trying to uplift. And we can't be bringing others down so that others succeed. You know, certain people shouldn't thrive at the expense of others dying. So I've been living in Compton since I was a baby. So I was nine months old. So like Compton's all I've ever known. Um, And for me, even before I understood what it meant to be undocumented in the U.S., which wasn't until my teen years, 
not it was until like middle school elementary school like those early years of k through 12 that you do realize and start hearing people start making certain comments about compton you know when you're a kid in the world you're not looking for what's going on uh what's wrong in the world you're just focused on whatever is good you want to go play with your friends it's not so your parents have to tell you things like you know you can't go out at a certain time you can't go through these streets hey you can't talk to strangers it wasn't until you know i think in my middle school years that yes it became a little more obvious that hey there's a lot of gang activity in certain parts of the neighborhood hey there might be rivalry between black and brown community here you know compton's known as a place where a lot of immigrants end up coming first because it's cheaper why because it comes with a reputation because they can't it's not a, the value is not as big because again all those stereotypes everything lends itself to make it cheaper and more affordable for certain families that's why there's a lot of immigrants there um, and there's a lot of black community there as well um, but for me i think instead of just judging the city instead of just focusing on the bad i also focused on the good i was with very talented classmates like i always got straight a's in elementary straight a's in middle school and i had plenty of friends who did so for me it was like no i'm not about to you know go ahead and try to focus on the bad we have a lot of really good hardworking people here whether they're, they're just the children i know at the time or the youth that's what I wanted to focus on. And I tried to tell people, look, um, good things come out of Compton, too. Um, and Documedia came out of Compton, I tell them. I just, I feel that, um, same thing with the black and brown, if I notice there is feud among certain people, whenever I saw someone who's black, I would try to treat, treat them with the best respect possible. Because my perception is that there is black and brown rivalry or racism or discrimination or just misunderstanding. And if I can help out someone who's black or brown, whatever they be, they're going to say that and remember that next time somebody makes a bad comment about someone who is brown and say, oh, no, they're not all bad. What were some of the challenges and tension points between uh, both communities, immigrant community and African-American community in Compton? I think uh, some of the biggest tension in our community between black and brown is the fact that there's a lot of anti-blackness in our community. Even like, I'll say it, like there's this, there's this um, bug. It's a green bug, um, a green bug that can't see. I don't know what it's called in English. Uh, it's a beetle and it flies around. What do, we, what do Latinos call it? Mayate. Mayate is a derogatory term for black. I didn't make that distinction, but because I didn't know what other name to call this book, I would say Mayate. And that is engaging in anti-blackness, because for whatever reason, we're using it. When somebody uh, in Compton, or not in general, somebody in, uh, that's black does something that offends a brown person or a Latino, what do they say? I say Mayate or I say Negro. Like, that's bad. I was exposed to all that, whether it was my uncles, my cousins who speak Spanish, my friends. And I never really said anything about it because when you're young, you think that's the norm or you don't feel like you're in a sense of speaking up. Like, I'm just a kid trying to get through school. What's, what's my role in the world in trying to do anything about that? But as I grew older, I started realizing that's bad. Like, it's not okay for you to have road rage and say, ese negro, oh my God. No, because you're, again, you are now categorizing a whole group of people based on just road rage. So little things, examples like that. And same thing with, uh, the, I think, the black community. I believe that... Um, there's so much divide in our country where it's easy to paint the immigrant as the bad guy, as the bad person, the bad woman, whatever it might be, uh, because immigrants are, are blamed for a lot of our problems. So I don't, I don't blame the black community for then adopting this notion of those Mexicans or like they're taking our jobs because that's what the media is telling them. So what's going to happen in Compton or anywhere else when a black um, a community or anybody goes ahead and if anybody in the black community sees someone brown, they're going to generalize just like people generalized 
uh, when I was growing up against their culture. They're going to generalize all brown people are taking their jobs. They're, they're the result. Uh, they're the, they're the reason for our problems. So it goes both ways. I tell people I have seen the successes and victories of every single underrepresented group. The LGBTQ plus community has made so much progress. They have so much more to go, but they've in, in such a little time in recent years, they've made big progress. The Black Lives Matter has a long way to do in putting an end to police brutality and putting an end to um, a black youth being profiled on the streets, but they're making progress. They're being elected now. They're being listened to. They have a platform. The undocumented immigrant community, we're still being deported. We're still being detained in detention centers. We're still lacking access to health care and, and access to coverage for, for some of life-saving surgeries even. But we've made great strides in that now we're talking about it on a much bigger platform as well. We have licenses in California. We didn't have that before. We have financial aid for undocumented immigrants. We have in-state tuition across the states and many across the country now. Uh, we have the the uh, environmental movement, et cetera. We have a long way to go, but to see people like at the, uh, at, uh, when they were doing the Dakota Access Pipeline, putting their bodies on the line for the earth, for the indigenous community, stand in solidarity. So you see me describing them. They're all working alone, though. They've come so far working alone. So I tell people, what if we all came together and we marched together, we rallied together? Do you know how much more we could do? Same thing with the trans community. They've been so influential to all of the other movements because they are oftentimes, some of them with the more radical and even cur- most courageous ideas, yet they're not receiving the same um, support from the other communities back. Like the trans community has influenced so many movements and a lot of people don't know that because the history is not there, but they're not receiving the same help in return. So I tell people, if we connect them all on Undocumedia, if we try to um, show you we post about 12 to 16 times a day. If we can expose you to one post from each of those independent communities and then every so often give you an example of what does undocu black look like? What does undocu queer look like? What does um, Muslim community, Muslim Mexican look like? Maybe you're going to start saying, whoa, I didn't even know there was Mexicans that were Muslim. Oh, it is a Mexican issue or it is a brown issue for Latinos too, not just Muslims who I thought you know, it looked a certain way. That's what we're trying to do. And we say, we're going to change the culture just by what we're exposing you to. And I think that's what we're trying to do. And then carry it one step further. And that is fundraising to stop deportations, fundraising to help people get back on their feet, maybe signing a petition so that there isn't a Muslim ban or making calls. So a 10 year old girl that's undocumented and trying to get help in an emergency room doesn't get deported or separated from her parents. So I think that's the goal that it's, We've understood how powerful we can be when we work alone, so we can be that much more powerful if we all came together. And back in the AudioLink LA studios uh, with your host, Felonius Monk. Look, what Yvonne has done here is to turn the alleged narcissism of social media on its head, right? Using like the most look at me uh, type of social media app and Instagram and, and using images to paint a different picture. It's not about him. It's not about selfies. It's about the people that need to be seen. For far too long, undocumented men and women 
have had to hide in the shadows. And so what he's doing with his undocumedia platform is to shine a light on them and show that these are people, period. These are not undocumented and illegals. These are people. And that's how they should be seen. Uh, you can find links to Yvonne and more of his work at undocumedia.org. That's undocumedia.org. And special thanks to our Rise Up Be Heard reporter, Mariah Castaneda, for her work on this story. The Brave Podcast is a project of Fusion Media Group in partnership with the California Endowment. The Rise Up Be Heard program manager is Jacob Seamus. The show is produced by Raghu Manavalan. Our executive producer is Jonathan Hirsch. And Fusion's executive director of audio is Mandana Mofidi. Special thanks to Fusion Stephen Keppel and Marcelo Rodriguez of the California Endowment and to AudioLink LA Studios in Los Angeles, California. You can find out more about the incredible men and women featured on this podcast in the show notes of this episode. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Next up on the podcast. For a long time, I've always felt this urge in my spirit. Like, man, you got to speak up. You got to do something. You have this platform. Maybe you can make a difference. Don't miss it. Seriously, subscribe so you won't miss it. Okay? And I'm Felonious Monk. I'll see you next time. And we're back in the studio with the Pope's favorite big homie, Felonious Monk. (laughs) I'm using that one. I'm going back. I'm getting that's funny.